A few years back, Susan and I, I think it was when we had just moved to Spartanburg, we went to a, a Wofford App State football game. And many of you know I worked as a campus minister at App State for several years. And this was actually, I think this was the year that App State beat Michigan. And then they went and lost to Wofford, so <laughs> go figure out how that works. Um, but we, we show up this game at this game, and the one banner I see on the Wofford sideline side or in the stand said, Welcome Appalachian State, home of Miss Teen South Carolina. Now you're like, well, now why, was, why is that banner there? Why are they making fun of App State? Well, uh, the young lady who had been, there was a young woman who had been Miss, in Miss Teen South Carolina. Uh, she had wound up, she was a freshman at App State, and she had become, if, I don't know if you remember this or not, somewhat of a YouTube sensation uh, in 2007 because of the answer that she gave to the following question. Um, she was asked why many Americans can't find the United States on a world map. All right, does anybody, does anybody remember this? I don't know if I should read her answer or not. Um, I kind of feel, feel bad about it. I'm not going to read her She gave a terrible answer to this question. You can go YouTube this later if you want to hear what she said. It's it very funny. It's one of the, the worst answers ever given. Um, and, and, but, but, but here's the thing. She finished fourth in the beauty pageant, all right? She finished fourth, and, and, and go watch this, and you go, oh, my goodness. She finished, she finished fourth in the beauty pageant. Why is that? Beauty pageants, at the end of the day, are about beauty. They're not about, they're not about anything else. Uh, Esther chapter 2 is going to tell a story of a beauty pageant, uh, and it's not about intelligence and honestly, it's not the type of beauty pageant you or I would want our daughters to be involved in uh, in, in any way. But it's a beauty pageant that God actually uses amazingly to work deliverance for his people. So that's what we're looking at. Esther uh, chapter 2. This is God's word. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women." Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Benjamin I can't talk. They're going to put me on YouTube. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem along, among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. 
and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best palace in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all of the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, uh, this is your word, and you've included uh, this book in your word for, for good reasons. And so I pray that you would use it now in our life uh, to help us and to strengthen our faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's just a quick review. We're not very far into the book of Esther. Here's where we are. Uh, last week in chapter 1, King Ahasuerus, he's also known as King Xerxes, uh, threw a party for all, of, all the bigwigs, all the kingdom, uh, and it lasted for 180 days. He showed off all his riches. All right, that's, that's a big party. After he had had this feast for 180 days, they said, well, this isn't enough. We're going to tack another seven days on to the feast. And on the seventh day, when he was drunk, as you can imagine he might be by this point, um, he calls his, his wife, Queen Vashti, out to parade in front of his drunken guest. And she says, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not going out there like that. She says no. And so Ahasuerus has her removed as, as queen. She's not the queen anymore. Uh, that's chapter one. That brings us to where we are in chapter 2, where it, uh, it appears that Ahasuerus is, has cooled off a little bit. He's missing having Vashti around. And so his servants, and I, I guess maybe his servants have been watching The Bachelor. I, I, you know, I, I don't know. They, they basically propose a slightly more risque version uh, of The Bachelor, where young women are, are rounded up and they're all brought to the palace. Now, <clears throat> here's how this would work. Uh, the young women were rounded up, they're, they're brought to the palace, and they're put uh, under the supervision of Haggai, and they would undergo 12 months of beauty treatments uh, under his supervision before they go in 
to spend the evening with the king. All right? So 12 months getting them ready for one night. They spent the night with the king. If the king didn't like them, uh, what would happen is they would become one of his concubines who he never saw. They just got like sent off into the far corner of the castle because he couldn't send women who had been with the king back out into the general population. So they were just kind of tucked away somewhere and forgotten about. If he liked them a little bit, they kind of became an, an on-call concubine that when he wanted to see them, they would come see him. If he liked them a little bit more than that, then they might become one of his two or three wives who would actually bear children. Uh, if he really, really liked you, then you might be the queen. So that, once you get rounded up, those are, those are the possible outcomes uh, for the rest of your life. Now, um, we hear this and we're all, I imagine, we're a little bit amused by it, but we're also kind of taken aback by this. What, what kind of society was this? Can, can, can you imagine a society where women are treated in this way? Can you imagine a society where there is so much focus on sex and beauty and externals? Uh, see, the, the king isn't looking for somebody to have uh, meaningful conversations with and to take strolls with on the beach. This is, this is all about appearance. Uh, this is all about pleasure. Uh, can you imagine a society in which it's all about appearance and questions of character are all brushed to the sidelines? Can you imagine a society in which a woman has to jump through these kinds of hoops to be acceptable to a man? Well, um, you actually live in a society in which the cosmetics industry is a $25 billion a year industry, uh, in which the diet industry is a $40 billion a year industry. Uh, in which one critic said overcoming food temptation has replaced sexual chastity as the symbol of female virtue. Uh, You live in a society in which women in high school have a body dissatisfaction rate of 60%, uh, and in college that actually goes up to 80%, uh, in which 42% of girls in grades 1 through 3, grades 1 through 3, express a desire to be thinner in which 15% of women would sacrifice more than five years of their life to obtain their desired body weight. Uh, We live in a society in which men tell women, you've got to measure up to certain standards of beauty and attractiveness, or I don't want anything to do with you. You live in a society in which women are basically told, undergo these beauty treatments. It's a lot more than 12 months. And unless you undergo them, then then you have no worth. You have no value. Uh, But here's the thing. It's not just women uh, who feel this pressure, and it's not just about beauty. Uh, We're all told from an early age that performance is what counts, whether that's athletic, whether that's uh, academic. Uh, Be a high achiever. That's what matters. And if you are, uh, then you count, then you are somebody, then will accept you. And it, it, it doesn't change as we age. You know, we have, we'd have different hoops we jump through. 
whether it's making the most money, having the most connections, going on the right trips, having the right cell phone, uh, having a certain number of friends on Facebook. There are all these external markers that we have that we measure ourselves by. And I've often said that, you know, I really think the results on American Idol would be different if you couldn't see the people who are performing. And they did that with the voice, so y'all can tell me if that theory's right or not. Uh, but, but we measure everything by externals and especially by physical appearance. Well, <clears throat> where does that leave us with Esther? What about Esther? Esther's one of these Jewish women, or she's one of these women who happens to be Jewish, who's caught up in the net and she's taken to the king's palace. How's she do? How's she going to do here? Well, uh, honestly, at this point in the story, you know, you always hear these stories about Esther. You need to be like Esther. At this point in the story, I would say, I don't, I don't think you really want your daughter to be like Esther. Because Esther is just kind of caught up in things, and she's just kind of going with the flow. She's following the directions of, of her uncle who raised her, and basically she's concealing her Jewish identity. Now, in order to do that, she's at least going to be breaking the Jewish dietary laws. She's probably going to be breaking the Jewish uh, Sabbath laws as well. And she's going along with whatever the leader of the harem is suggesting that she do. And then she spends an evening with an unbeliever, uh, one she's not married to either. So at this point in the story... Um, I don't know that we'd want to say to people, you should dare to be an Esther. Um, because she's just, she's just kind of going with the flow here. But you might say, no, no wait, what, what would you really expect her to do? I mean, what could she have done? Was, was, there, was there really a way out of this situation? I mean, could she have been uh, in the position of, say, a Daniel, where she really could have resisted and not done what was being asked of her? I mean, Vashti certainly refused the king, but then you see what happened to her as a result. So what was she going to do? What should she have done? Here's a a point. Um, We all face these sorts of situations where uh, we're tempted or we feel the need even uh, to assimilate into the culture around us and just kind of go with the flow. Like I said, the culture puts all sorts of pressure on, on women to be beautiful, on, on men, on all of us to be successful, uh, on all of us to consume as much as we possibly can. You know, saving is, is, is un-American. Spending is what drives the economy. And, and there are just all these cultural pressures um, that we just find it easier to go with the flow with at times. And we're all caught up with them in one way or another. We're all like Esther. You know, we find ourselves caught in situations in which we make choices that we then have to live with for the rest of our lives. That she had a choice. Do I reveal my Jewish identity? Do I refuse to go in and spend the evening with a king? Uh, and, and, you know, just take whatever comes from that? Or do I... Uh, Go along with things. Go along with the pageant. Go in and, and spend the night with a king. And that's what she chose to do. And some of us have made those same kind of choices when faced with the pressure to go along, to go with the flow. 
You know, you might have been in a, a, a relationship, you might be in one now that uh, you shouldn't be involved in or shouldn't have gotten involved in. Maybe you've done something dishonest in your business in the past because it's, it's the only way we're going to make it. I mean, it's, it, we're not going to make it if we don't cut corners here. What else can we do? Uh, we've been quiet about something that maybe we should have spoken up about. Maybe we've spent our whole life trying to be successful, trying to be beautiful, trying to, to meet these standards that the culture puts on us. We've, we've been in moral dilemmas, and, and we know, we, we look back, and we didn't, we didn't choose well when we were in that situation. And so where does that leave us then? Where does that leave us? Uh, does, does that make us kind of like a train that's run off the tracks, that's derailed, and God looks at us and says, well, I can find another train that's, that's running better than you are, that's moving along on the tracks all right, and sorry you didn't make it. Uh, notice, and you can't see this as well yet, but you're going to notice as we read the book of Esther that her past, past disobedience doesn't exclude Esther uh, from being used by God to help his people. Her past disobedience doesn't exclude her from being used by God uh, to help his people. In fact, in fact, it was actually her disobedience that put her in a position to help God's people. Interestingly enough, now that doesn't mean that we just all, okay, I'm going to go disobey God and hope for the best. Um, he's he's going to work that out. But it does mean that God is still capable of doing great things in our lives, using us in great ways, even when we feel like we have royally messed everything up, and maybe we have. Uh, we shouldn't despair and say, I'm just, I've done too badly. I've, I've wrecked everything. God's, he can't use me from this point on. And what we need to remember in those situations is, look, maybe you were disobedient, but God has you where he has you for his reasons. And the question is not uh, keep looking back at what you have done, uh, but think about and ask yourself, am I willing to trust him now? And walk with him now and be used by him now as I faithfully serve him in this place where I am, even if maybe I'm in a bad place because of my own disobedience. Because, because here's the thing, God delights to use people who have these enormous skeletons falling out of their closets. And he works in the lives of people who have made these colossal mistakes, who have sinned badly against him, against other people. Uh, he works in the lives of, of people who've been Christians for years and yet they still find themselves, oh, why, did I, why did I do that again? Why am I still chasing the wrong things? Uh, one commentator on this passage said, <clears throat> excuse me, that many of us find this kind of unsettling when we hear this because we think the story of the Bible is a story of a God who blesses and saves people who lead these morally exemplary lives. When the real story of the Bible is the story of a God who pursues people and gives grace to people who don't deserve it, who have made a wreck of their lives, and who often don't appreciate God's grace when they get it. People like you and me. Esther, uh, in the first two chapters, 
uh, is a story about a king. It's a king, he's a king who pursues beautiful women. And then, in order to make them more beautiful, to measure up to his standards, he makes them undergo 12 months of beauty treatment. Uh, Then he auditions them for the evening. Uh, He uses them to satisfy his own desires, and then he throws them away when they aren't any use to him any longer. That's the story of Esther 1 and 2. The story of the Bible, though, as you look at the holes, it's a very different story. It's a story of a king. It's a story of King Jesus who pursues a, a bride that isn't beautiful. He pursues a bride that, that's ugly. He pursues a bride who's full of pride and lust and anger and all sorts of idolatry. He pursues a bride that's, that's never going to measure up to the standards of God's law. And Jesus lays down his life for this bride in order to make his bride beautiful. Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her in order that he might sanctify her and cleanse her, in order that he might make his bride beautiful. See, the world around us is a lot like King Xerxes, King Ahusuerus. It's it's beckoning us. It's constantly telling us, make yourself beautiful, Uh, sleep with me, and then I might accept you. Kill yourself to succeed. Do these things. Jump through these these hoops in in the hope that you'll be acceptable and loved. And Jesus says, you come to me as you are. You don't have to jump through any hoops to get to me. You don't have to go through 12 months of, of beauty treatment. You don't have to make yourself acceptable and beautiful, come to me and I'll make you beautiful. Uh, You don't have to make yourself beautiful. There's a story that's told, and it's in a book by Les Newsom and Brian Habig, and I don't know which one of them tells this story. I I, I hate these dual author books. You know, I don't know who told this story. But it's one of them tells this story of doing a wedding. So he's up here at the front doing the wedding, and the the groom's standing here, and he's, he's watching, kind of watching the groom out of the corner of his eyes. And it's always kind of fun to do that um, as a minister. It's kind of look at the, the groom's reaction when the bride starts to walk down the aisle. And when the bride comes out, he's, he was watching this guy, and he said his, his knees just kind of buckled, and his jaw just drops open, and these big tears start coming down his face because he's so awed uh, by the beauty of his bride. He's, he, almost, he didn't think the guy was going to make it through the ceremony because he was so overcome by the beauty of his bride. And uh, the guy telling the story said uh, that Christians usually think the moral of this story is that, okay, you need to love Jesus the way this young man loved his bride. But that's not the point of the story at all. Because if you think about Ephesians 5, it says we're the bride. We're the ones coming down the aisle, and Jesus is the one who's the bridegroom. Uh, Jesus is the one who is standing there and whose knees buckle. Tears are coming down his face at the sight of the bride that he has made beautiful that is now walking down the aisle to him. Uh, You know, when you believe that, when you really start to believe that, that, that you're a prodigal, that you're not beautiful, that you don't measure up. But in the sight of Jesus Christ, 
you are more beautiful and loved and accepted uh, than you could ever imagine. That Jesus Christ is actually amazed at the sight of what he has made of you. When you believe that, when you can see yourself the way Jesus actually sees you, then you won't worry as much about being beautiful. You won't worry as much about measuring up uh, to the standards that the world places on you. And see, that's, that's kind of getting at the real secret to how we change as believers. You know, we've got to get to that place where the love of Jesus um, is more satisfying to us, is more wonderful to us than the applause of the world around us. When, it, when, it's the, love of, when the love of God is the thing we want to lo- warm our feet by, so to speak. Uh, that's what amazes us. That's what enthralls us. I was, I was talking to somebody the other day about how uh, we, were, we were both sharing about how in high school, sports were the way that we tried to establish uh, our, our street cred, so to speak. This is the covering we tried to, to create for ourselves and have other people like us, accept us, applaud us, whatever. And, and I used to think, I really used to think, uh, you know, as long as I don't drink and stay out of trouble and kind of color inside the lines, then this, this sports part of me is just, just, it's not related to that. I can still be a good Christian and have whatever attitude I want to uh, on the court or on the field or whatever. But, see, the, the way I thought about sports showed the reality of what was going on in my heart, even though I might have been able to check off a list of external things that hey, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good kid because what it revealed about my heart was I didn't really crave God. What I craved was success or achievement or, or, or whatever uh, the idols of my heart were. And, and we all have those, those things in our lives, those things we crave more than we crave God, these things that control us and that enslave us. And where's our hope in that? Where's our hope to be delivered from that? Our hope is that Jesus takes people like us. He takes people like Esther. Uh, He takes people who have made questionable choices, people who are caught up in going along with the culture around us, and he changes us. And he actually makes us beautiful. And he is awed at the sight of how beautiful he has made us. He changes us, not on the outside, but he changes us from within, and and honestly, that often has an external effect. Um, He changes us within, and he uses us even to advance his kingdom. People with with skeletons we're trying to shove back in the closet, he uses us and loves us. And, you know, you might even be thinking right now, I I don't know, I've, I've messed up too badly. How could God ever Use me. You know, this saying goes, uh, God loves to, to write straight lines with, with crooked sticks. And um, I would simply leave you with this. Quit focusing so much on the, the mess you've made. Quit focusing so much on the disobedience in your past. And look at what Jesus delights to do with people who have messed up badly, but people who can simply come to him and receive him and kneel before him in faith. Let me pray for us.
Uh, Father, we, we give you thanks uh, that you love us and that you meet us in the midst of our messy lives uh, and that you use our um, meager efforts for the kingdom, even our, our, our messed up efforts, our efforts that still have wrong motives attached to them in every which way. Uh, Father, that, that our past is not too big for you to overcome. That our past does not have more power than the blood of Jesus. And we give you thanks for that. And Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see us the way you see us. Uh, the way your son sees us as those clothed in his righteousness, as those made beautiful by him. Father, would you help us to to lay down the self-salvation project we're all working on so hard uh, and simply to rest and, and believe in the love of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.